I don't know about you, but I find many people are fascinated by the concept of unsolved mysteries. And there are a number of them that continue to capture our imagination. Uh, for instance, there's Stonehenge in, near Salisbury, England. Uh, there's general agreement that Stonehenge is between 4,000 to 5,000 years old. But you know what we don't know? Exactly who put these massive stones in place when the larger ones called blue stones actually weigh more than four tons each. And what was the purpose of Stonehenge? Was it a sacral, sacred burial site? Was it designed to track astronomical movements? Was it a place of healing? You can find people who make all of these arguments, but nobody knows definitively. It's one of those unsolved mysteries. Oh, here's another one, the Shroud of Turin. Is, is this the face of Jesus? Since the late 1300s, two camps have formed around the shroud. The first firmly believes that this is the actual burial cloth that was placed on Jesus' head and across his face, and that the image itself is miraculous. The second group holds that this is a clever and deliberate fraud. And so in 1988, as new technologies became available, radiocarbon dating tests were done to a, a small piece of fabric on the corner of the shroud. And the end result of that was that uh, the folks who held those tests believed that this is a fraud, that it suggested that the shroud originated somewhere between 1260 and 1390 A.D. based on the, the age of the stuff that's embedded in that little piece of fabric. Yet there are other researchers that took a look at other parts of the shroud and they can test the conclusions from the first experiment arguing that the piece of fabric that was tested had been contaminated from all the different groups around the years that have tried to handle that thing and tried to figure out what it is. We just don't know. And then there are more modern unsolved mysteries like whatever happened to D.B. Cooper? You know, D.B. Cooper, the, the, the man who in 1971 hijacked a Northwest Airlines flight. He was heading from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, and he jumped out with a parachute and $200,000. Now, here's what happened. Cooper got on the original flight and handed a flight attendant a note claiming that he had a bomb. He demanded $200,000 in U.S. currency, four parachutes, and a fuel truck that would be standing by in Seattle. So they landed in Seattle, they fueled up, somebody okayed the allocation of this money, he got a, a case with $200,000 in it, and the flight was uh, allowed to land and they let all the passengers go and most of the crew and there was a pilot and the co-pilot and a couple of crew members that were there. And he gave instructions that the plane was to take off again heading for Mexico with one stop in Reno, Nevada. Then two hours into the flight, all of a sudden Cooper jumped up with the money and a parachute and he, he jumped out of the, the, the door. He opened the door in mid-flight and he was never found again. Although an eight-year-old boy uncovered some of the money that had serial numbers that matched the ransom money in Washington state. The FBI officially closed its case on Cooper in 2016, but it's one of those cases that they say they never really stopped searching for answers. It's an unsolved mystery. Now, I bring up these three mysteries because the primary text in the Bible that we're looking at this morning centers on a long-standing mystery that has been revealed by God through the ministry of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to a first-century church, uses that word mystery. And this morning, we're in the third part of this summer series that we're calling Getting Clear on Jesus. And our theme today is no longer a mystery. 
There are some things in life where it's really, really good to know that something that was a mystery to many people for a long time is no longer a ministry to those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are three mysteries of the gospel that Paul talks about here in these verses that we read just a few moments ago. Uh, One of them is the mystery of the ages. The mystery of the ages. In verse 25, Paul says, I have become its servant, meaning the gospel servant, by the commission of God that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that he had kept hidden for the ages and generations, but has now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Apostle Paul introduces the mystery that God had kept hidden for the ages here in these three verses. The Greek word that's used here for mystery is the word musterion. So we actually get our word from this language, and it referred to concepts that had been hidden in the past, but that are now being unveiled little by little. That's exactly what Paul means by this term here. It's not an unsolved mystery. It's a mystery that was hidden for a long time, but now it is a it is a an open secret. It's an unveiled mystery. And he had been commissioned, along with the other apostles, to present news that had been hidden from the world until the arrival and ministry of Jesus Christ. So what was this mystery? This mystery is something that could only be revealed after the cross. This mystery concerned God's plan for dealing with human sinfulness. The mystery was no little thing. It involved God's outrageous plan to bring people from every nation and tribe into one kingdom, his kingdom forever. The mystery is God's outrageous plan of grace for the nations. Now the central feature of this mystery is stated by Paul within these verses. He describes it as Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the central mystery of everything that God has been doing. This mystery of Christ is applied in three ways. First, the mystery is for the church. Christ is given to a community of believers. And so we we know some of this presence of Christ through us as a group as we gather, along with all kinds of church groups wherever they meet all across the world, whether they meet in buildings or out in nature under a tree, or whether they are part of the persecuted minority in some third world country or uh, with a controlling government that doesn't allow people to meet openly and celebrate Christ. Everywhere that happens, they are celebrating this same open secret, this mystery revealed. Second, the mystery is given to individual Christians, that Christ is in you. If, if you have faith in Christ, if, if you are alive to Jesus Christ and you have invited him to take leadership in your life, Christ dwells in you as an individual. And so you can be separated for a time from the rest of the church. And nonetheless, this same truth holds dear and sustains you in very difficult times. And third, now Paul also tells us that this mystery also includes Gentiles, which was a new revelation for that time in the first century, something that Old Testament Jewish people never in a million years would have imagined that they would be sharing this kind of oneness with the same Lord, the same Savior, the same grace with people from all of the other nations. It's a marvelous thing that God has done. This message was an encouragement to the Christians in Colossae. 
Now think back, those of you who've been with us for the last few weeks. Paul was writing to encourage the church in Colossae with the knowledge that they didn't need this so-called higher knowledge of the Gnostic teachers because the greatest mystery of the ages has already been revealed to the church. Why be distracted by the promise of some new secret when the secret of the ages has been revealed to the community of faith? He is saying you are in a privileged position already. Paul was also writing to teach them about this concept that we call the indwelling of Christ. Indeed, Paul himself had been encouraged by the presence of Christ while he was in prison for preaching the gospel. This letter to the Colossian church is considered to be one of those prison letters that Paul wrote. And it was the presence of Christ with Paul and in his life that kept him going during this time. And so he even references that here in this text, that he's been kept from them. They don't even know him. He's never met the people in this church. And yet he says he's contending for them. He's praying for them. He's laboring for them. He's putting his best arguments forward, trusting that God will do what Paul can't do from that distance. And Paul was also delivering a gospel of inclusion among the nations. How is this a gospel of inclusion? Well, in the past, only Jewish people had heard directly from God. And now through the reconciling work of Jesus, a way of grace had been put into effect for the people from every nation around the world. And the gospel movement was spreading. Jews and non-Jews were experiencing equal access to God, equal access to His grace, equal access to all of the hope that we have because of the risen Jesus. Question. Have you experienced Jesus Christ in this way? Do you know with confidence that Christ lives in you? If that's only a theoretical concept that, that you're even having a hard time getting a hold of, I, I want you to know that a little bit later in this service, I'm going to describe how it is that you can access that and think about that in the next few minutes, that this is a mystery that God wants to unveil even to some people here who haven't yet taken part of that. Here's the second mystery that Paul describes. The first is the mystery of the ages, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the second. And I'm not sure we're all ready for this. The mystery of suffering. Now there's a happy concept to talk about in church on a Sunday morning, isn't it? But it's an important concept. The mystery, the, the mystery of suffering is really, really important to the way that God has broken through strongholds that tend to hold people back, that tend to hold the gospel back. So verse 24 actually starts this portion. We're going back a verse. Here Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. We don't often think about that concept, rejoicing in suffering. He says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up my flesh in what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Not for the sake of his body, uh, for the sake of his, of his body, which is, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Now, I have to tell you that verse 24 is a very hotly debated text in the Bible. So we need to be clear about some things. We need to be clear about what Paul did not teach here. Paul was not saying that he had to add to Christ's suffering in some way. In fact, he's very, very clear. Everything we've been looking at the last three weeks, Paul makes clear that Jesus is enough in every possible way, right? You got that. Jesus is enough. Jesus is the reconciler. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one who has made this way possible. 
And we said we're going to repeat that theme until you, when you think of Colossians, one phrase pops into your mind. That's where I learned that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough on my darkest day. Jesus is enough on my best day. This concept is called the sufficiency of Christ, that he is truly sufficient for all that we truly need. He's sufficient to bring us to God. He's sufficient to take away our sins. He's sufficient to give us this new life that we enjoy now. He's sufficient to lead us all the way to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus alone is sufficient for all that we need in order to know God and to experience him and to have a new, vital, living, reconciled relationship with God. So what was Paul teaching here in this verse? He was telling us that his suffering was for the benefit of other people. It was for the church at large, including the church in Colossae. He wasn't suffering in exactly the same way that Jesus did. That was done. Jesus took our sins to the cross. But Paul was acknowledging that the suffering of God's people opens doors for the gospel. And that's why he had joy in the midst of that. Just as Christ's suffering resulted in the ministry of grace for the world, now Paul's suffering allowed him to identify with Christ in Jesus' suffering. And rather than scaring people off, people were seeing that God's grace was sufficient even for one of the most outspoken, bold uh, proclaimers of Christian faith, and that when he was attacked or when he was hard-pressed, he didn't shrink and blow away. He was able to stand up to every challenge. And other people were emboldened by watching Paul face this crisis, this mistreatment, and the suffering that he withstood because of his proclamation of Jesus. One example of this is what we were seeing among Christians in Iran today. You don't read about it in our, our regular newspapers and such, but a recent newsletter from the Gospel Coalition reports that the country where the Christian faith is spreading fastest today, believe it or not, is Iran. Iran! Here's a photo from the Gospel po uh, Coalition that they recently published showing a river baptism in Iran. All these people are dressed in white and they're, they're lining up in that river to be baptized. And they know that simply by doing this, somebody's recording their names. And things could get very difficult for them. But rather than having oppression or suffering turn people off, it is authenticating the gospel among Iranians who are seeking God's grace. And this isn't all being led by Western Christians going over there. That's almost impossible to do in that nation today. It's being, being led by Iranian Christians who are witnessing to their own culture, who are withstanding some of the persecution that comes and coming back to tell more people about the grace of Jesus. Kent Hughes, who was my pastor in a couple of my years in college at College Church in Wheaton, tells the story of Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere was a British medical doctor. She served for more than 20 years in Zaire, Africa. For some 12 and a half of those years, she had a generally wonderful time serving as the only doctor to an area that contained more than a half a million people. But in 1964, a revolution took place that overwhelmed that country. And she and her co-workers were thrown into five and a half months of almost unbelievable, unbearable brutality and torture. On one occasion, when Dr. Rosevere was on the verge of being executed, a 17-year-old student came to her defense and was savagely beaten as a result and left for dead. Dr. Rosevere was sick. 
She couldn't believe what she witnessed. She couldn't believe that this young teen had stepped in and taken the beating that was meant for her. And for a moment, she became discouraged, and she thought that God had forsaken her, even though uh, she did not really doubt his reality. And then God stepped in. He overwhelmed her with the sense of his own presence and whispered something like this that she wrote in her journals. Twenty years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary, the, the privilege of being identified with me. These are not your sufferings. They are my sufferings. And that whisper from God that he knew what she was going through, that he was allowing her to identify fully in his sufferings in that moment, hit her like a ton of bricks. As the force of that hit home, she was overcome with this great sense of privilege. Helen Roosevelt's sense of identification with Christ, of union with him, was elevated by her suffering, and she rejoiced. Paul likewise rejoiced in the sublime oneness that he sensed as Christ participated with him in his sufferings. Friends, I have news for you. I don't believe that God brings bad things into our lives, but I also don't believe that God exempts us from things that are normal to life or normal to the times in which we live. Please do not believe anybody who tells you that if you receive Jesus, everything's going to be easy from here on out. It just doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way with the apostles. It didn't work that way all through the New Testament. It didn't work that way in the early years of Christian growth. But one thing happened, that God supernaturally met people in the midst of all those difficult situations, and he still does that today. And when the same people stand up and say, Jesus is enough in the midst of these great difficulties, other people realize this is a faith that is tested and their testimonies are authenticated by suffering. And so here Paul wants us to know about the mystery of suffering. It is part of the Christian journey. It's part of life. Why would you go through that and take some of that on apart from Jesus? And then here's the third mystery that he talks about. The mystery of becoming complete in Christ. Becoming complete in Christ. Verse 28 picks this up to the end of our section. Here Paul boldly proclaims, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. There's that word again. Namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. We've raised this concept week by week. Jesus is enough. And now Paul lays out his ministry goals. There are four of them that are contained in here that I could find anyway. The first is to present every Christian as fully mature in Christ. Please know this. 
God's goal is not for you simply to have an introductory experience with Jesus, to pray the salvation prayer and say, I can check that one off. I got that done. Everything's okay. Uh-uh. He wants you to become fully mature in Christ, to, to grow to the point where you are confident, where you are strong. Second goal, to encourage their hearts and to unite the church in love. The more that we are encouraged together and we are united together, that bears witness to the power of God and how he works in our lives together. And the truth is we need each other and we help each other. So there's a part of our faith that is private and individual. There's a huge part of our faith that cannot be fully understood unless we are together in this movement, bound to each other, sharing life with each other. The third goal is to bring them personally to know the true mystery of God, namely Jesus Christ. I want to say this as simply and as clearly as I possibly can. God wants every single person in this room, no matter your background, no matter what country you came from, no matter what your first language is, no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, no matter if you're going to, you've had experience in church for your entire life, God wants you to know Jesus Christ. And if you can't say with confidence that you know Jesus Christ personally, it's a really good thing that you're here today because this is one of the major goals of Christian faith. And you can know Jesus. There are all kinds of people who tell you you can't, that he's a, he's a voice from the past, that this is just a concept, but he is alive. That's the point of the resurrection. That's why we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And the reality of the resurrection has ongoing ramifications for you and me. We serve a living Lord who loves you, who wants to know you, who wants you to know him and to enjoy him. And then here's the fourth goal, to bring them to complete knowledge and to the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, Paul is saying, you don't need all these other beings that the Gnostic teachers were saying exist between Jesus, who must be the lowest of the low because he created this bad, bad world, and God who's up there who's perfect. You don't need all of that because the fullness of God dwells in Jesus and the fullness of knowledge and wisdom is found in Jesus. Jesus is our treasure. The gospel is our treasure. And the more you study, the more that you know, the more that you internalize these words of the Bible, you find the treasures of God opening up to you that give you knowledge of who God is, where your place is in the world, that you really matter, that there is a creator out there who created your life, who cares about every day of your life, and who designed you for eternity. And then he tells us that knowing Christ is the key to avoiding deception. Yes, there are all kinds of competing ideas. There always have been, there always will be, right until the end. The Gnostic teachers, they were just one of the groups of the past, but they wanted to steer young, non-confident Christians away from Jesus. And there are people who want to do that today. They claimed that they had something better, that they had something more sophisticated. And so they wanted to look down on old Paul who's out there in prison and thinking that Paul had failed and that Paul was disconnected and what they were finding is that Paul's ministry couldn't be bound by chains or cells. And Paul was reminding them through this letter that the cross and the resurrection prove that Jesus is all we need to take care of our sin problem and to usher, 
usher us into a whole new life-giving relationship with God and into his kingdom. So here's the question that I raised a few minutes ago. Are you ready to receive the mystery of Christ? It's not something new that I'm proclaiming. It's something old. It's something that 2,000 years ago was unveiled. And the key to embracing Christ is faith. Faith is an act of trusting that Jesus is God's solution for our need for, for reconciliation and inclusion in the fullness of God's kingdom. As we saw last week, all the fullness of God the Father dwells in Jesus. So we need nothing more than Jesus. We have to acknowledge that he died to pay for our sins and to remove every sense of alienation from God. He asks us to turn from doing things our own way and instead to turn toward Jesus in faith. Faith always involves a transfer of trust. In our culture, it's a big deal. It's where we give up the right to say, I'm good the way I am. I'm fine the way that I am. My goal has always been to do what I was taught, to just be good enough. Here's the problem. What is good enough when you're talking about a holy God, a perfect God? Jesus came to pay for all of our sins so that the Son of God took care of that problem for us. We don't have to be good enough. We have to be attached to the one, the only one who was good enough. And when we get out of the personal salvation business and we instead lean on Jesus and put our trust in him, there's a shift that happens. And we stop saying things like, I'm good the way I am. Or I'm a good person. You are good. Relatively speaking, I am too, I hope. But we're not so good. We're not so good that God is just right there saying, hey, you know, you did it your way. Frank Sinatra, baby. <laughs> Frank Sinatra sings a mean crooner song, but Frank Sinatra's gospel is a false gospel if we take it to that, that extreme. Jesus is the one. So how do you do that? How do you have that transfer of faith? It's a decision in the mind that has to come down to the heart Usually we speak it with words. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you have not received Jesus, if you do not fully, uh, have not experienced this mystery of Christ in you, this is the moment when you need to take that step. Follow after me something like this. Dear God, I have tried to do things my own way. And I'm not sure where the line of good enough really exists. Thank you that Jesus came to pay my debt to cover my sins, to remove that sense of alienation that I have sometimes felt when I think of you, and to give me a whole new life, a life not marked by alienation, but by being reconciled to the God who created me, the God who loves me. Forgive me. Help me to lean into Jesus. Help me to live this new life and to press on to the point where my, my knowledge catches up with where my heart is right now. But I pray that you'd make me new on the inside, that I would discover the mystery of Christ in you the hope of glory.
God, I pray that if there's anybody here who prayed that prayer right now, that you would confirm again and again over the next few days that this is a person who's walked into a whole new relationship with you. This is a person who's walked into the mystery, no longer being kept outside of it, no longer being kept in the darkness. Thank you for sending people into our pathway who have broken this down, who've explained it, who've put it in writing like the New Testament disciples and apostles. Thank you for those who have modeled this faith for us. Thank you for those in different places of the world who suffer for their faith in ways that we're not necessarily always called to do. When the time comes to live out our faith in the midst of dark days and challenging times, let the disciplines that we develop together remind us and carry us through and strengthen us. And let us hear your whispers that we are yours, that even our suffering is for your sake so that we will identify with you and appreciate all the more what you have done. God, thank you for every person in this world and every person whom we will touch with the faith that we live out. Thank you for not leaving us outside the mystery. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the big idea we've been explaining here this morning. The great mystery of the ages is Christ in you. And growing complete in Christ will guard you from every deception. I want to close with this final thought. Many of us have become very dependent on this invention that we call the GPS. Do you know how a GPS really works? A GPS, a global positioning system, the key concept behind it is called triangulation. And there are a number of Department of Defense satellites that are somewhere up there about 1,200 miles in the sky. And these satellites send signals back and forth to Earth, and our GPS needs to pick up signals from at least three or four of those satellites in order to send a signal down that tells us where we are so that this, this inf information comes right to us. It takes a few seconds, and it calculates... Uh, in this triangulation process, it calculates the, the signals that arrive so that based on that information, th that satellite or that group of satellites through the GPS can target where you are to within about 50 feet, and they're getting closer than that. It didn't take some people very long to realize that there are other useful applications of this, so much so that the, the military puts little trackers in every article of supplies and resources for the troops overseas so that at any given time, the military can know exactly where that container of supplies is. Those shipments, shipments are never lost, and their location is always known. So here's the point. When you put your faith in Jesus and you enter a new or renewed relationship with God based on Jesus, he places his own spiritual kind of GPS inside of you. You are never lost. You are never alone. You are never at a point where he can't find you. You are never so deep in trouble that he can't rescue you. And here Paul is telling us that that GPS union, unit is Christ in you, the hope of glory your direct link to God. Let me call on our ushers and we'll come, we'll uh, 
receive this morning's offering. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for remembering it's 10 o'clock for the rest of the summer. And we've got one final song that we're going to sing and go out of here.